With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to a special edition of the Sports Illustrated Planet Football Podcast. I'm Grant Wall, and I was part of a panel discussion very recently at the American Outlaws Rally in Austin, Texas. American Outlaws, you probably know, is the biggest fan group for the United States national teams. Uh, They've got nearly 200 chapters now across the country, more than 30,000 members. And I had spoken at their first rally in Las Vegas back in 2011 when I was running for FIFA president. They were very supportive of me then. We shot a video at the Caesars Palace pool, in fact, or the fountain. And uh, so they had another rally, and they invited me again. And I was on a panel with Tab Ramos, Christine Lilly, and Jimmy Conrad, uh, Tab Ramos, uh, the U-20 coach for the U.S., assistant to Jurgen Klinsmann, former terrific player, obviously, for the U.S. national team. Christine Lilly, one of the greats of all time for the U.S. women's team, who's now an uh, assistant coach for the University of Texas women's team. And Jimmy Conrad, who played in World Cup 2006, former MLS Defender of the Year, who has his own YouTube channel these days. Uh, the panel discussion was also moderated by Chris Donahue of the American Outlaws. He did a very good job. A lot of interesting conversation here. Hope you enjoy. Thank you guys for being here. Um, this is an open format panel. I will have some specific questions for each of you, um, but feel free to debate amongst yourselves and we'll get right into it. All right, Jimmy. The other night, you mentioned to me that we are a generation away from a World Cup win and that you would ideally someday, if you could stand it, coach the under six kids and get them to the next level. What kinds of things would you change for kids at such a young age and why? Uh, I think that's a good question. Thank you, Chris. Very well thought out. Um, Using my words against me, I appreciate that. That's like what a kid does to their parent. So I would say that at the U6 level, it's just a matter of getting uh, familiarity with the ball and making sure that we de-emphasize winning and make sure that it's about touching the ball as much as possible, putting kids in situations where they solve problems for themselves. Um, Tab can probably speak to this a little bit more expertly than I can, but when I run my camps, uh, I talk to these kids and they're like, yeah, yeah, we're training more, we're doing more things, we're, we're, we're playing more, but then they're actually playing more in a structured environment and there's never a chance for them to use the, the things that they're hearing from their coaches in a way that they have to solve the problems for themselves. And, and not to say that doesn't ha- that's not a straight cover or, uh, for every single coach out there, but it just seems like we, as much as we're implying or um, putting in place more things to, to have the kids touch the ball more, sometimes we're not giving them the freedom then to then solve problems on their own, that we're not giving them the creative freedom to, to make that happen. And I'm sure he's ready to jump in, and please do, Tab. I'm waiting for it. But, but, I, but I think there's, there's, there's a lot of special coaches out there. I know there's a guy named Tom Beyer who's kind of revolutionized the Japanese uh, football, and, and he's working with China now, and I think Tab's met him before. And the way he just thinks about getting to uh, the young kids and making them just really comfortable with the ball, and that's it. And there's a lot of simple things. And I know it's not as easy as, it, as I may, may paint it. 
Um, I would add, too, that it's almost like we need our best coaches coaching our youngest players. But there's no glory in that. There's no money in it. There's none of that. And so, you know, the, the sooner we could get to impart in, in wisdom on our youngest players, then when they get up to the U10, when they get up to the U15, when they get up to Tab's spot with the U20s, he doesn't have to worry about basic technical stuff or tactical stuff. That's already done. And now he can start to hit advanced tactics and how we're moving as a group and how we're going to pressure. And everybody's like, yeah, I get it. You don't, you don't have to reiterate it. You don't have to really go over it too much in practice. You can say it once and, and they can apply it. So that, that's what I would like to do and see some changes on that end. And, and from what I understand, it's happening. It's just maybe not as public as we'd like it to be. Absolutely. All right, so I think that's it, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're excused. All right, President U.S. Soccer, coming soon. I'm going to run against Sunil. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go on. Because why not? That's my tagline, because why not? I'm starting this off really well. So, uh, <laughs> All right, Next question, Chris. Let's yeah. go. Well, I just, can I add one thing? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just came from a U7 game. That's why I was just running in here. <laughs> my, daughter, my daughter's team was playing. But just to touch a little bit on the winning part, I mean, it's, so, it's such a big emphasis at such a young age that that's really not the importance. Um, it's really the kids, like Jimmy said, feeling comfortable with the ball, learning some technical skill, literally not to use your toe. You know, that's the kind of stuff that, I'm like one of these, some of these college kids coming in and they're trying to serve a ball and, and their plant foot's just not in the right spot. I'm like, where, where, where did that happen? <laughs> where did you not learn that? <laughs> so I think along that line, it's just, you know, getting the kids familiar with they're having fun, focus on them trying to do something with the ball. And the whole part you talked about organized, everything is organized. So we grew up playing, going down to the park and playing pickup, playing basketball, playing any kind of football in the backyard, not organized. So we had to figure out who was on whose team, where the fouls were, what happened. So we don't have that because society, what we have is it seems we can't do that anymore. So kids do need to find a way to be a little bit more creative in their brains and find some freedom in playing the game. So you, can, you can follow me anywhere and back up your, all my can comments. Can I be your VP? I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Next. I'd be curious to know where Tab, sorry to interrupt, no, just like where you are on, on no, some I mean, of this I, stuff. I think, I think this is perfect because this, this has been the challenge. And so this is, we're talking about the same things. And so what we try to do, sometimes it's easy to say, hey, you know, let's get the coaches out there. We need the best coaches for the younger kids, just like you said. And then, but it's difficult to get them out there because you're right, there's no glory with that. So what we've done, what we're trying to do with small-sided games is take the actual coaching away from the game. And so, because there's just not enough knowledgeable people. And so, and so when we talk about maybe, you know, we used to go down to the park and play, and that's just not an option anymore. For some kids it continues to be, but it's very small. So what we're trying to do is bring the, sort of bring the park to the kids. Instead of having some coach who doesn't know what they're talking about, put the kids on 11 aside, and now try to do a formation. And next thing you know is, there's three kids standing over there because they've been told to play defense, and they're actually not even moving. They're one, two, three, and they're looking down, and the game's going on here. And then when the ball goes there, I mean, everybody's seen that. Everybody's seen that. And so by making the game smaller, hopefully we eliminate the, I guess, tactics, you would call them, in the younger game. So we, we just bring the, we really bring the, the street game to them. I've got very little to add from a technical perspective to that, but just wanted to say real quick story. My first cap as a fan was the 1995 Copa America semifinal that you played in, in Uruguay. And I just went as a fan and was like a two-man 
AO chapter before a AO even started. So you were the guy. That was you. <laughs> I, that was, so, okay, so you were there. And I'm just kind of tickled to be here with three U.S. World Cup stars on the stage. Well, thanks, Grant. Flattery gets you everywhere, Grant. That's all I'll add. Flattery gets you everywhere. Tab, you touched a little bit on this during your speech. Um, how do you value the experience that the clubs in Europe um, are giving your youth players as opposed to how the MLS guys are doing? And what, what advice do you give to guys thinking to make, or guys that have offers um, overseas, what advice do you give them um, as they make their decision? Look, I mean, that, and that's a tough question because it's, you know, it's hard when you take sides for somebody to say, well, you know, you pick them over us or, you know, the other way around. Uh, it, it's really, it depends on the player. It really depends on the player. I think there, you know, there's a good challenge on both sides. So the MLS, the, you know, when I talked before about, you know, there's been, you know, 89% of, of development academy players make up the youth national teams in, in the last year and a half. Well, 50% of those come from MLS academies. So MLS academies are doing a good job in developing players onto the national team. And now you look at, you look at other scenarios. So, so you look at Christian Pulisic, for example, right? So he goes to Borussia Dortmund, and at 17 years old, he plays, he plays in actual games, like real games, European championships, and, and he plays in the Bundesliga. He scored two goals in the Bundesliga, which is a record. I'm sure everybody here knows. You should know if you don't know. But that's, so he's done that. I, and I'm not sure, I'm just not sure if he was in MLS, if he would have gotten one game. I mean, this is how I think as a coach. I just think as a 17-year-old, he probably would not be getting the opportunities that he's getting at one of the best clubs in the world. But then again, not everybody's Christian Pulisic either. There's many players who go overseas and don't get a game. So I think it depends. So you can look at both sides. I think Europe can be great. Ideally, ideally, and yes, this comes from me, and this may sound a little bit like Jurgen, but ideally, you, you want to have players playing all year round. And the fact is, MLS stops for a long period of time. And that's not great for a young player to not be playing the month of December, the, you know, to be, not be playing November, December, and January. That's a long time to be off. And in Europe, you don't have that. Who are some guys that have impressed you that might not get the media attention that your Pulisic and your Miazgas are getting um, that are coming through that you've seen in recent camps? Wow, that's a good question because, uh, you know, sometimes when we start mentioning players, we start putting pressure on them, on them right away. And, we've, you know, we've made that mistake, I think, way too many times. Uh, so Christian, obviously, so <laughs> Christian obviously is a great player. And so is, you know, Matt Miaska, who went to Chelsea. And so is DeAndre, who, you know, obviously is in Tottenham, but played a great game today for, for Sunderland. And so we, we do have those. And then on the, on the younger teams, we have players who are coming up, you know, that are, that are very skillful. And, you know, we can't forget, we can't forget about Gideon Zalalem. So although he's at, at, at Glasgow Rangers right now, and he's sort of a little bit off the path of everybody talking about him, he's very special. I mean, Gideon probably has the best touch I've seen on any youth player that I've seen in the last five cycles for sure. Uh, and so I'm hoping like a lot of big things are coming from Gideon down the road. And you know, it's normal for youth players to have their ups and downs. And so, and so we're, we're waiting for that. There's players on the new U20 national team, Danny Acosta, who's a central midfielder, who's, I think, who I think would probably be the best you know, number six that we've had, so defensive midfielder that we've had in the last few cycles. And, and that's, that's a lot to say, considering we had Will Trapp two cycles ago, and Will is excellent. Uh, and so there's, there's quite a few of those. And we have a lot of attacking players. Jeremy Abobis is a, is a great player attacking. Um, you have um, 
Emmanuel Sabi, who's a great winger who can take people on. Uh, so we're starting, to, we're starting to get players who are a little bit more uh, creative um, on the final third. This one's for Christine. Um, what do you think of the United States' chances of summer at the Olympics, and who scares you as a contender? Um, well, I, I always believe in our team, so I think we have a good chance. But it's like anything you compete in, you got to play your best soccer, and you got to do it continuously. Um, as we see um, from the World Cup, I mean, their best soccer didn't really happen. It kind of went like that. And then Carly Lloyd just decided to have a day. Um, <laughs> For, actually, not a day, 15 minutes. What, what was it, 60 minutes? Um, so I think there's a great chance. But I think if you look at the women's game, it's grown so much. And it's in such a great uh, state worldwide. Um, I think it could be better because I think these uh, smaller countries, Colombia and all these countries that come into these World Cups get this attention for uh, six weeks or a month. And then they go back home and they don't compete anymore because they're not getting um, support from their governing bodies. So I think the women's game can grow with more support from other countries supporting their governing by um, more of their teams, getting better coaches, and investing in these players, and that will help the U.S. Uh, the world game for the women's side. But for the U.S. and the Olympics, they got to come out and play. You know, they got to come out and play. They got a lot of young um, faces coming in there that have been doing well. Uh, Lauren Horan playing over in Europe. You know, she's you know doing really well. Uh, Becky Sauerbrunn in the back there. I think she's one of the smartest players on the field. Can read the game and orchestrate. And then they have new, you know, leadership. You know, Abby's gone. Um, Shannon Box. A lot of the veterans have moved on. Christy Rampoon's still hanging there, so we'll see where she fits in the mold. Um, but if they can put a team together out there, work together as a unit, and and play some fun soccer and compete, they have a great chance. This one's for Grant. Um, we've seen a tremendous amount of foreign and minority development in our national teams in the past ten years. It certainly benefits the player pool and development. What are some other tangible benefits that you see with the evolving player pool? I mean, I would love to see even more Latino players on the men's and women's side, more African-Americans on the men's and women's side uh, get involved in the national team programs. And I'd be curious to know what you guys think about that as well. Um, I know when, when Tab was coaching the U-20s, you've been coaching the U-20s. Uh, you know, uh, a columnist Paul Gardner uh, has written that uh, he really appreciated the, the style of play of your teams and he appreciated the amount of Latino players on your teams. Um, I mean, where are we, I guess, in your opinion, in, in the process of getting more, like over the years it seems like people always would say Latino players' prospects slip through the cracks of the U.S. system. Are, are we, is that happening less now? To, I mean, to answer your last question first, it, it does happen less, um, you know, but for me, you know, my 2013 U-20 national team that, although there was a lot of Latino players and that made Paul Gardner really happy, you know, I'm just looking for good players. So it doesn't really matter to me what they look like. So, so on the last cycle, I think that just ended, it was a mixture of sort of all kinds of people. And on, and on this one, there seems to be more African-Americans uh, probably maybe 40 or 50 percent of the players that we have. So it, you know, with the young teams is a, is a little. It, it can be skewed because it depends on the age group. So so you depend on the age group, and let, you know we have to see now who makes it all the way up to the top. From Christine's perspective, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on um, integrating maybe more minorities into U.S. women's soccer. Obviously, we see it. Uh, is is it possible to do more? 
Well, I, I mean, the same thing that Tab said, you're looking for a player. You know, you want a player that's going to make a difference. I don't care what color or race you are. Um, and I don't know if it's the system we have. I don't know if it's the club system. The expenses are too high for some, and then that's where our focus is, is finding those players on these ECNL teams now. So I think it's really kind of creating a system where we're not having these players slip through the cracks. And I, I don't think it's an easy thing, obviously. Um, because there are all those players that maybe don't have the money that have that talent, and you're like, okay, what, what do we do for them? How do we create an environment where they continue to grow as a player and make an impact and, and try to reach our highest level? Um, on, the, on the women's side, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know where to start with it. I mean, I don't know if there's that many that are minorities that are not being seen. You know, that's, I think we don't know that yet. Um, so that's where we get just creating an atmosphere where kids can be able to compete. And I know here in Austin they have a, an organization that works with inner city kids that maybe not have the opportunity where they can play and, and have that. And hopefully other people can see them do that and maybe there's a talent that comes from there. This one's for Christine as well. In 2014, you were elected into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. During your acceptance speech, you mentioned that one thing that you learned during your time as a player is a team is stronger when you stick together on and off the field, and that playing for your country is an honor and a privilege, one that should not be taken lightly. Do you believe that certain players, past or present, men or women, need a reminder of that? I think we all do. I think we all, uh, sometimes we get caught in like you're playing soccer and this, but you really forget what you're playing for and what you're representing. And it's not just you. Um, you know, it, it's many things. It could be your family, your university, your hometown, your, especially your country. Um, and to remember that because it's a bigger picture. It's not about one of us. I mean, all of us have played. We, we're not on the national team anymore. You know, we're, we're gone, so new players are filling in. So you have to remember that you're representing something for a period. And that period that you're there, it is an honor. It is an honor to put that jersey on. Um, I think you guys feel when you cheer us on, right? I mean, and how great do you feel when there's success, when our team, teams win or we score that last minute goal Landon did? You know, where, how you feel, that's, that's the honor for your country. And that's as players, that's what we feel when we step out on that field. And I think there's always good to have a reminder that you're representing more than just yourself and that you're a part of a bigger picture because that bigger picture is what we're all about, to have this sport grow, to be the best in the world, um, to give you guys something to be happy about um, and cheer on. So there is a good reminder. But I think a lot of the players that have played on the national team, they know. If they don't know right away, they know. At 16, I didn't know. Right. You know, it took me some, some time. I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I'm playing for the U.S. Okay, I get it now. So it does take a little bit of time, but it is an honor. It's something that I am so blessed that I was able to do for so long. Jimmy, you're a little bit of a latecomer to the national team. Um, I think you were 29 when you got your first cap. <clears throat> 28. 28. <laughs> um, late bloomer. Definitely uh, fell through the cracks. <laughs> right. I've played the, That's the what it was. U.S. soccer scouting system. Didn't spy me. No, I wasn't confident enough when I was younger. I think it maybe really deep, by the way. Sorry. Did you take it with a little bit more sense of pride since you were a little bit older and you didn't go through as much youth system as some of the current guys? Oh, no question. Uh, and I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I didn't get that opportunity at a younger age. Most guys, even the younger ones that maybe you're on the peripheral or on, on the bubble, got it at 22, 23. You still bring them in to give them a look. And Bruce wouldn't even give me a look. I'm like, what is going on, man? So I, Bruce was, if there was a list that I had of, people that I might not like so much. Bruce was on that list for a while. 
And then when he named me to the team, the World Cup team, then he was definitely on the other side of that list. So I, I appreciate that. But, but uh, it motivated me to keep going, to keep trying, to, to not be discouraged because an opportunity wasn't coming my way. And, and it just took me a while to embrace being a professional, first and foremost, but also to visualize that I was capable of playing for the national team. And when I first joined MLS, I, didn't, I was just happy to be in MLS. I really wasn't thinking above and beyond that. And then as you have a couple years in the league, you start to see what the other guys that are doing that are getting called in consistently. Uh, then, then you're like, you know what, I, I can do that too. They're not doing anything that, that I'm not doing. They just do it better or they do it more consistently. They make less mistakes. So having, uh, being able to share the field with Jeff Agus in San Jose for a few seasons was a, a big deal for me because Jeff, uh, consummate professional, obviously not the most athletic guy, but very smart. And I learned a lot from his, how he organized, how he led, and, and, uh, and I don't know if I would have gotten or, or seen the early stages of what it took to play for the national team or without his guidance. This one's definitely for you, Jimmy. Okay. <laughs> it's June 2nd, the night before the Copa America. Jurgen Klinsmann sends you the following text. <laughs> Jimmy, I'm screwed. Alvarado, Gonzo, Bees, Cameron, Birnbaum, Brooks all got food poisoning from some bad mahi-mahi. <laughs> I need you, bro. I need you at <laughs> need center you. back tomorrow. I love that he's saying bro, but go ahead. Yeah. Jimmy, save me. What do you want, or who do you want with you and in front of you? Okay. Uh, I'm glad that he's calling me bro and calling me in. I would say that I would love Eddie Pope to be next to me. Uh, I'd love Steve Trundolo to be playing right back. And, uh, God, who's my left back? That's a tough one. But I would have Pablo Mastriani sitting in front of me. Yeah. And then there's a, a wide array of goalkeepers I could choose from. But um, I really enjoyed playing next to Eddie Pope. So if he still had some grease in his wheels, I'd probably bring him out and see how he's doing. Did you want me to pick a current player that I'd be playing next to? No. And there's a lot of guys with food poisoning I mean, there. yeah, two players yeah. right That's next to you right here. Well, I would, you know what? Becky Sauerbrunn. I'm just going to say her. Wait, what about me? Oh. Why not? I mean, I was going to hit me. World Cup winner. I would take a World Cup winner next to me in the back line. I can play left back. You can play me. You can be my left back if you want. I like you closer to goal, though, I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Christine, prior to the 1999 World Cup, awareness and attendance was considerably less than it is post-World Cup. In fact, you yourself joked that you had more fans at your training camp during the 99 World Cup than you did the actual games leading up to it. How would you compare the support women received today prior to the 99 World Cup? Um, well, it's just grown. I think I, w I was just talking to someone about this, and it it's amazing how the, the game of soccer has grown, not just the women's side, the men's side as well. And the fact is, every time you turn on the TV, any day of the week, you can get a soccer game. That wasn't like that 10 years ago. I mean, any day of the week. I mean, Tuesday, Wednesday, we know are exciting, Saturday, Sunday mornings, but I mean, you can get a game. And it, it's awesome. And I think that's where we are in America with the state of soccer. And that's due to you guys, too. I mean, the support that we've gotten and, and grown. Um, I mean, the men, you guys have been starting it since, the, I think we hosted the World Cup in 94. You know, that was kind of a, the start of it. Um, and then it just continued on the women's side. And I think, uh, from 99 to they won this year, I mean, it was just a gradual thing. And then obviously the winning and social media, I mean, shoot, everyone knows what's going on. And the attention, the, the women got this past summer and the crowds and the, and the TV coverage. And then now 
what we need to do is continue that off World Cup years for the women's side. I think the, the men have a bigger consistency. I think for the women's side, we need, when these NWSL games are going on, we need those crowds to start filling in. We need people to start to go in those games to build that up and build a community around all these teams in different cities um, where they're supporting their group and growing the crowd that way. Because I think the U.S. women have it for their games, big crowds. I mean, we were, another game's already been announced. It's just crazy, the amount of fans, which is so incredible. Um, but now I think doing it at a national level with our pro league will really continue the growth um, of the game. I wanted to run something by you guys in addition just to mentioning something. I don't know if you saw last week that Alex Morgan's Facebook page carried the live stream of her first NWSL game in of the year. And the amount of unique page views or people who watched it were higher than the ratings for most MLS games on television, which was very interesting to me. Just yeah. the, the numbers because Morgan and other players have so much social media following. I wonder if mm -hmm. that might be something that TV execs pay attention to. The other question I had for you is, I've, I am convinced the U.S. is the best country in the world now to watch soccer on television in. That, and it's amazing because, it, like you said, it wasn't that way even like 10 years ago. Yeah. And now you can see anything from the U.S. and abroad. You can see more games. You can see every Premier League game. We see more games here than people in England see. And my pet theory is, is that this actually will help the development of U.S. soccer from a playing perspective because kids grow up now being able to watch so many games. Like, I could not as a kid, or I assume you guys couldn't. And on television, and have the game kind of seep into you and... and all the little things that you get from just watching so many games at a young age, and now you can see that professionals make a ton of money playing soccer, and that's possible for you to do, and maybe people won't quit at age 13 and switch to a different sport. Am I on to something? No, no, I, I, I would like to add that it seems like, with regard to other sports in this country, baseball kind of grew up in the radio age, or, and when you go to a game, it's very like father-son, father-daughter, it's just a personal connection between you and one other person more often than not. And then when you look at the NBA and, and, and NFL, um, those are TV sports that grew up in the TV age. So their, their games reflect that. Timeouts for commercials. I mean, that is just part and parcel of those two sports. And then with soccer, they can, advertisers can never figure out a way to get advertising in. They don't know how to figure it out. But then the rise of social media has allowed you to be a part of something bigger than yourself. So if you're a kid in Indiana watching Liverpool, for instance, well, you could actually be talking to somebody that's at a Liverpool game. Um, you could be part of a collection of thousands of people that are all watching the same game you are, and, and I think that's only going to, as you say, add and enhance um, the, the spirit of the game with, with our kids here and think that they have the possibility to, to be a professional at some point, too. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a great time for soccer in this country. I think, you know, some people say this is the peak. I don't even think we're close to the peak. I think we have a, a long way to... Um, we're kind of, I don't even know if we're at the middle of the mountain. I still think we're at the bottom looking up because we have a, a lot to aspire to both on and off the field. <laughs> Tab, when you look back on your time with the national team, what are some, obviously we, you touched on it er, earlier, um, what are some other things that you could go back and change or th things that you miss about playing? Uh, uh, yeah, that's, Can you remember? You know, the change, that's the conversation for maybe later tonight. Oh, we should have changed this. <laughs> we definitely should have changed the 1994 uniform that we have over there. <laughs> No. Looks good on you, though. Looks good on you, though. Well, look how much pride um, in those shirts. You know, it's funny because, actually, I think Grant and I talked about this when that uniform came out. Um, John Harkes had been named one of the People's Magazine's 
20 is, you know, best looking people in the world or whatever they name. I don't know what they <laughs> named, but he was named one of those. And I remember they introduced the uniforms. We were at the Rose Bowl in like a little huddle. And they said, oh, you know, this is going to be the uniform. And I remember me saying to U.S. Soccer, I was like, ah, oh, man, even John Harris doesn't look good in that uniform. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was the question? I don't even know what you're asking. What are some things you miss about playing? Oh, what did I miss? Um, okay, uh, so we got that out of the way. Uh, the, I, I mean, I, I, miss, I miss the games. You know, when I, when I go back now to my national team, I don't want to be playing, by the way. It's, it's way too much work, so I'm done with that. I don't want to practice any days. Uh, I just want to play those games, though. Like, you live for that. Really, that's, that's what it's about. Grant, you've been covering soccer for SI for nearly two decades. How's the media landscape changed since you um, were ascended into soccer from basketball? Uh, it's changed a lot. Um, so I started in 96, and Soccer was really hard to get into Sports Illustrated then. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of crazy. It's totally night and day compared to now. Um, but uh, back then, like the media was different too. All we had was a magazine each week, and there was no website even, you know. And I, I look at us now, and we're this soccer more than other sports is a digital sport in in the way that the media covers it, in the way that we cover it. I probably even now write devote 70% of my SI time to digital, whether it's writing, video, or podcasts. That's totally changed. Uh, I mentioned earlier, television has been soccer's best friend in the United States over the last five to 10 years. ESPN did so much by taking a risk at first to show World Cups. And there was a time when World Cups weren't that big a deal in the US, men's and women's, and now they're gigantic. And the, you know, the ratings, I mean, you guys know the numbers, right? I mean, the Women's World Cup final last year was the most watched soccer game ever on US television. You had 27 million people around the country watching that game. The men's ratings from the 2014 World Cup were very close. Some of those games were like 24, 25 million. And really only the Super Bowl was bigger than that. I mean, like the NBA Finals, the World Series are not bigger than the World Cup at this point. So, so I have a good story to, to where we started, where we are now, right? Where we started. So it's 1990 World Cup, and we traveled to Italy, and I think we had one reporter travel with us, and it was, it was USA Today. So it was Roscoe Nance from USA mm -hmm. Today. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. But I don't know. For whatever reason, he, didn't, he really didn't know about soccer, which is fine, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, so, so he traveled there. Super nice guy, by the way. But so he traveled there. And I guess on the trip, he became friends with Jimmy Banks. And Jimmy Banks is one of our defenders. You know, just, I, think he, I don't think he ever played again for the national team after that World Cup. But I remember we had just lost to um, Czech Republic, well, Czechoslovakia back then. We, we got hammered. We lost like 4-1. So after the game, he comes up to me for an interview, and he goes, hey, Tab, so you guys just lost a really tough game against Czech Republic. How's Jimmy Banks feeling? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, really, that's your question? So I think we've come along a little bit now. Only half my questions are stupid. Jimmy, in your first World Cup game in 2006, you came off the bench to secure a 1-1 draw against eventual World Cup winners Italy in one of the most iconic games in US soccer history. Tell us what the experience was like from watching Eddie Pope getting sent off to the locker room vibe following the match. Yeah, so when Eddie Pope got sent off, my initial reaction was like, holy shit. <laughs> what are we gonna, who are we going to put in, you know? Uh, and I had just eaten an energy bar at halftime because I thought, honestly, I was like, um, you know, I always tried to prepare myself 
uh, and I thought, oh, maybe I'll get in this game with 10 minutes left. I'll try to hold on to the tie, or if we get a lead, uh, you know, maybe that'll happen. So when you don't start a game, you eat at the same time as the starters. So you are so hungry by the, by the middle, middle of the first half. Man, I could, I could go for a big meal right now. Anyway, so I grabbed an energy bar, and uh, I burned right through that because it was a couple minutes after halftime. And then uh, Bruce and Mooch pointed to me. And I didn't even need to warm up. My adrenaline just went from zero to 100 uh, as fast as I possibly could. I did as many, like three sprints. Like, get on there. All right, cool, whatever. Shin guards, let's go. <laughs> and, and I'm glad that my first World Cup experience was like that because had I had time to prepare, I, I think I would have been a, a, like mentally screwed. And actually, I had some of my, my, some of my worst trainings ahead of the Ghana game, which was five days later, and I knew I was going to start, where Mooch came up to me, he's like, what is wrong with you? I don't know. I almost tried to sabotage myself because I was just so nervous. I had so much lead up to, to what am I going to do? How am I going to play against these guys? Um, so the Italy game, being just thrown in without even thinking about it, and that was, that was really neat. And, and to be able to maintain that lead. And for me, from like a really soccer geek perspective, we held such a high line despite the fact that we were down a man. It was 10 versus 9. We had six offsides, I think, or six or seven against Italy in that. And that's pretty much unheard of because more often than not, teams like to park the bus and, and sit back on top of the 18. And, and I thought we did a good job of maintaining. That's just me going off on a straight tactical tangent. But I loved that we had that and we still maintained that shape. And for me, as that's my job. It, it meant a lot to me that I could come in and still kind of manage that. And then we got a good result. And, and after the game, I had uh, Andrea Pirlo is one of my favorite players. So after the game, you know, we're switching jerseys, and Italy was way into switching jerseys. Not every team is, but they are <coughs> Mexico. And uh, <laughs> and and Del Piero comes up to me, Alessandro Del Piero, and he goes, "Hey, you know, you want to switch?" And I waved off Del Piero, <laughs> and I said, "And I said, I'll get in Pirlo's." Uh, and so I went and got Pirlo's instead. So it was a, a big thrill for me, but. Yeah, I waved off Del Piero. I, feel, I still feel pretty bad about waving off Del Piero. Because that guy's a legend. That's it. That's all I got. How was the atmosphere post-game in the locker room? It was good. You know, we had gotten, we felt embarrassed because the first game against Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic, was, uh, was a performance we weren't proud of. And for us to, to borrow a phrase from Dumb and Dumber, totally redeem ourselves, uh, felt good that so we had a sense that we had a chance in that last game because had we lost that, it would have been over. The, the, the third game wouldn't have mattered. So it was, it was nice to have given us a, ourselves a chance and to fight back from, from 10v9. And, and uh, for me personally, uh, my dad was in the stands. He hates to fly. It was Father's Day. So you have all those kind of you know, teary-eyed you know, hallmark moments. But um, yeah, it was great. And, and the fact that we had a chance against Ghana, and I thought the referee screwed us in that one, I'll just be honest. Um, Right before, I mean, can we roll the highlight on that just so I can talk about it? So who wasn't ready for that? Where's Dan? I want to roll the highlight of this Ghana bad PK call. Anyway, that was the only game I ever thought was fixed. I'll just say it. I'll say it. That's a whole different conversation. That one is for drinks, I think, to have. That one's for drinks. You can just move on to the next question, Chris. I'm digging, I'm digging myself a hole here. Christine, outside of the gold medals, World Cup victories, what are some other things that you look back on fondly of your U.S. soccer career? Um, well, um, it was, I mean, those are great, obviously, you know, the winning was awesome, but I think when we do think back, go back to Tab, it's those moments on the field, some moments in the locker room, 
that you're just hanging out with the girls and shooting the shit a little bit, making fun of each other. Um, but I had some moments on the field. I remember the 2004 Olympics when we beat Brazil in the final. Um, being on that field and standing there, I, I didn't want to leave. Uh, just because it was the last time that Joe, I would play with Julie and Joy and Mia. I knew they were retiring. And everyone thought we were going to lose. And we, we had some help, I think, from the post a couple times. Um, but it was just one of those games, and everyone was down on it, saying the team were too old and all this. And Brazil was probably one of their best showings um, against us. And I remember just standing on the field, and I was like, I don't want to leave here. You know, I think I was giving Boxy a hug at the time, and then I gave Mia a hug, and I was like, this is just awesome. And then they kick you off because they got to bring you back out for the awards. Um, but it's moments like that. It's, it's those little things. It's not like, oh, do you remember that move and that goal? It's not that stuff. It's the, the stuff that really stands with us in the locker room and, and, and the friendships we've created and putting on that jersey. I tell you, I still, every, even when I watch the games now and I hear that FIFA anthem, when you hear that boom, like, I'm like, I almost had that for my wedding. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll be running down. But at that moment, it, 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 for me as a player, it was that. It was just like that thing that turned you. You're like, here we go. This is getting ready to go. And it, it, it was such a special feeling when you're walking out on that field and doing that. And so those little moments that I really, really cherish. And the big games. I don't want to play. I don't want to practice. I don't want to train. But I want to play in the World Cup. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I love that feeling. I love being out there to be the best. Christine, I got a question for you. Yes. So you guys win the 1999 World Cup. Awesome, of course. Um, Brandy Chastain whips off her shirt. Sports bra, really iconic. We're like, dude, she stole my move. Like, that's what I wanted to do. Totally. Yeah, was that? Totally. I knew, I heard. What's, the periscope's on this somewhere. I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't do it. I couldn't do it after the third kick, so I was like, if I do it now, it's a little too early. No. No, I had no, and who knows, Brandy Weather, I don't think she had a plan. I don't think anyone can plan uh, shooting, uh, taking the last kick and penalty kicks and scoring. Um, but did you see how strong she was? Yeah, she was ripped. And we all miss those bodies. <laughs> all right, Jimmy, this one's for you. You've been very public about your criticisms of the national team as of late. One of the things you said is that we lack identity and an established style of play. What should our style of play be, and how do you implement that if you were a national team coach? Sure. Uh, what's Lester doing? I like, I like what they're doing. Whatever those guys are doing, that's what I like. And I think uh, their, their, their style, just to use them as an example of, of kind of that team camaraderie, uh, and I think we have that. You know? And I, with, with regard to the criticism, I guess my expectations were a little bit too high with regard to Jurgen in particular. Um, the guy's won a World Cup. He's seen a lot of things. Uh, in fairness to him, he comes from a European style of management where he's kind of the overseer and then there's guys underneath him that do some of the, like, the first team coaching and all that. And, and over here, I think there's a, or how I grew up, is if you're the coach, you're the coach and you do everything. So, so there might be some, some misinterpretation on my end. Uh, I do come at him in particular quite hard. But, uh, you know, I'm excited about a lot of the things that he's done. Um, he does a great job of, of keeping U.S. soccer on the tip of the media's tongue, as it were. Um, he's, he's very savvy that way, and, and, and I like a lot of the things he's doing. He's broadening our player pool. I don't care where we get players as long as they're good. And if they're American, then I would love for them to wear the shirt. So uh, I don't have any issues uh, with, with some of that stuff that's been talked about recently. And, uh, but I'm not backtracking on it either. I, there's still an accountability that needs to be there, and I'm not afraid to say it. I'd, I'd like to see our team play better and, and, and play in a way where we're not having to 
have must-win games against Guatemala to qualify. I think we're just past that. And I know there's going to be moments where it's difficult. I've played in these World Cup qualifiers, either on the field or on the bench. It's very difficult. And any, anybody that qualifies in Europe, they always say, oh, well, it's Europe. It's so much harder and all this. But no, I, want, I, I, I challenge them to come down and try to play in you know, 90 degrees and humidity in Guatemala City or in Panama or Costa Rica or wherever it is. It's, it's very, very difficult. Uh, but I just, there was this, this, this promise of progress from, from Jurgen, and when you see the lack of success with some of our youth national teams and the, not qualifying for the Olympics two times, or, you know, two times in a row, for me that's just not good enough. And, and I think that if he's going to promise progress, well then I'd like to see it. And I think those are tangible, tangible, that's tangible evidence to see whether we're progressing or not. Like Jimmy, I haven't always been uh, Jurgen's favorite guy. Uh, over the last year or so, especially. Um, and, I mean, like, it, 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 there is some frustration, I think, in, um, in not qualifying for some of the, the world youth tournaments. I mean, obviously, Tab's U20 team did quite well at the, the Under-20 World Cup. Um, uh, but I also feel like, in the interest of hearing from an assistant to Jurgen Klinsmann, we have one right here. <laughs> He was eyeballing me, so I was like, oh, I, mean, so I was trying to pick my words carefully because I was just feeling this death glare on my cheek. <laughs> you know, like I'm one step away from the big guy. I'm like, yeah, I can feel it, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's really, I mean, there's really no, no way for me to answer anything different than you've said. I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion, and you're a journalist, and you want people to mm, listen to you. That's strong. I'm not a you know, faux and, <laughs> I mean, look how I'm dressed. I'm like a faux journalist at best, but go ahead, continue. Well, I mean, what I'm going to, the only way I'm going to answer is you said the lack of success on the youth level, and that's, I think that's not true. I think the fact that we didn't qualify for the U-17 World Cup for the first time in however many years, well, it's bound to happen. That's, that's going to happen sometimes. Uh, the U-20 team has qualified the last two World Cups, and the last one we were one penalty kick away from going to the semifinals. Uh, we are producing players to the first team, so that's our number one goal. So if you know, because someone else may think, and I'm not saying you in particular, but in general, if someone else is thinking that our goal is every day getting up to be the world champion at the U17 level, that's not what it is about, although we would like that. We would like to be U17 world champion, U20 world champion, but the ultimate goal is to make sure that we know that we're passing players on. And so as we move on with this youth national team, and when we go to World Cup qualifying, and Gideon Zalalem is not there, and, and Christian Pulisic is not there, and Cameron Vickers is not there, and, and Eric Palmer Brown is not there, and then all those guys won't be there. And so if we want to say, okay, well, our goal is to just only absolutely qualify to the World Cup and win the World Cup at the youth level, then that, I think it's clear to see that that's not the actual only message because we don't always have all our best players because the first time we play a World Cup qualifying game, and so now it's just announced that the U-20 uh, World Cup qualifying will be in Costa Rica, I think they said at the end of February, end of February, beginning of March of next year. I can pretty much guarantee you 100% that the day we play that, the first game that day will be the first time that those 11 players will have played together. So yes, we have a two-year cycle, and the two-year cycle we're developing a player pool. But we, de we develop a big uh, player pool for a number of reasons, one being that we know that usually our best players are not going to be there, because that happens. MLS teams sometimes hold players back because, hey, it's FIFA dates, and are, and we think we have a U20 camp, so FIFA dates, we're like, oh, okay, great, FIFA dates is great for the U20s because the teams will release them. Sometimes an MLS team will say to me, 
Uh, no, I can't release Tommy Redding, for example, at Orlando City. I can't, and this hasn't happened with Tommy Redding, but I'm just going to say, I cannot release Tommy Redding because he, although he hasn't played for us the whole year, because his FIFA dates, we have other internationals who left, so he's going to be on the bench that weekend. And so that happens. And so that's not, we have not yet taken a stance from a U.S. soccer standpoint where we have said to MLS, hey, look, you know, like Mexico, for example. I can tell you last year in Mexico, uh, Irvin Lozano and, um, and Gutierrez, the two most important players on their 95 age group last year when they went to the World Cup, their team, Pachuca, was in the, in the league, Mexican Liguilla in the middle of it. Those players are starters for the first team and they left to go play with the U-20 national team. That's just how it is in Mexico. Their players go. Our players don't go. And so we, it's, it's very hard for us to have that aim. So, but that doesn't change things for us. So I want you to know that. Because so far, both U-20 teams that I coached into World Cups, they went into World Cup qualifying knowing that we're going to World Cup qualifying not to just qualify to World Cup. We're going to World Cup qualifying to be CONCACAF champions. That's why we're there because no U-20 team has ever done it before. That's our goal. So now we end up qualifying to the World Cup. That's still a good, I think it's a good accomplishment in general, but it's, it's a little bit different. So when we challenge, I think, the youth national teams, obviously I'm there, so I'm gonna be a little bit defensive of that part of it, um, but, but that's a fact. That's, that's kind of who we are. So next year when we go to the World Cup, ideally we will have Gideon Zalalem and we will have Christian Pulisic, and we will have, we would have McQuelly Akali, who plays for Villarreal. We will have all those guys. So when you look at those three guys and their qualities, you look at three number tens, right? That's pretty much their position. That's their best position. So obviously Christian can play on Dortmund on the left side, or what, but they're three number tens. So when I go to the World Cup next year, I'm not thinking I'm gonna pick the best of the three and use them at number 10, and then use a left winger and a right winger. I'm playing all three. That's, that's, the, that's my job. My job is that these guys get playing time so that they get experience to go to the senior team. Obviously, secondary in my job is that I get results. So there's a balance. But there's no question, the way I look at my team is, my job is to put players on Jurgen's lap. Whether it was Emerson Heinemann or Matt Miazga or DeAndre Yedlin or all those guys went through 20 y and succeeded, started to succeed at the national team. So, you know, so, that's why I said before in my presentation, you were late. That's why you don't know. But uh, <laughs> that's, why, that's why I said in my presentation before I, that. I appreciate you yeah, going back around. Yeah, yeah. So, miss out. so, but that's why I said in the presentation before that, although it looks like, you know, it looks a certain way from the top, sometimes a senior team doesn't play well, gets poor results, terrible in Gold Cup or whatever, and now we're going, oh, our whole system, you know, all the way down to the youth. And that's not necessarily the case because you have to really analyze what the goals are. And that's, that's really all I'm going to say about that. I appreciate that. I would add, too, that it seems like we've gone through this before with Jurgen, before the snow game in the last World Cup cycle. There was a bit of upheaval, let's say, behind the scenes that Brian Strauss expertly uh, brought to light. Uh, the sporting news at the time, he's with Sports Illustrated and, and Grant now. Uh, and I think we're kind of going through, or were, before the Guatemala game, of some more adversity. And I, I don't know if I've, I've done enough on media, social media, to, to really congratulate the players and the coaching staff for figuring out a way to bounce back from that, from that adversity and always playing particularly well oh, after that. That's a lot of backtracking. <laughs> I mean, I didn't get defensive about what players were there and what players weren't. So, well, How far do you want to go? We can, we can go back and forth on this tab. <laughs> Hey, look, the fact is we should beat Guatemala every time, no home question. and away. Right. I mean, it's not like we don't know no, that. No, like, know, we yeah. should. Yeah. We should. We're a lot better than they are. Of course. Can um, I butt in with a really quick question for Christine? 
Um, yes. I know you're, I know you're coaching. Way, Christine sits over there and she goes, well, when we beat Brazil in the World Cup <laughs> final. <laughs> and I'm like, I wish I could say that. But no. I haven't said a word. I, I know you're coaching here in Austin. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, you have more caps than anybody in the history of this sport, by the way. I yes. Mean, like, and it would be, in my opinion, a very cool thing to see you involved with coaching the national team. Uh, and do you, that's my, so that's my first question, like, at least being part of it, do you have any interest? Um, you know, I, I'm, I would love help developing the game. Um, and what I realized after retiring, and I mean, I did camps and clinics, I coach kids, I, you know, I train kids at the young level, and I love it. And then when I retired, and then uh, I had an opportunity to come here to Texas to, uh, to be on the staff, I was like, all right, let's give this a try. But coaching is very difficult. It's a lot of work. It's so much easier to play. And for me, what I'm learning is, is that fine line of um, when I'm on the field, I can show, I, it's so much easier for me to show the players. So I step in with the players. I'm like, OK, look at the difference here. But now to stand out and, and kind of see it from a view of the coaching uh, perspective, it's difficult because a lot of times I have 6,000 things running through my head that this player can't do or I want the player to do. I'm like, OK, get this ball, and then you turn, and then this person. And I'm thinking, OK, they can't. They can't do that. I have to pick one or two things to have them focus on in order for those things to register. And then I'm like, okay, now you've turned with all and you're facing, but this person's running here. And so I'm, I'm going through the process. And I, I do love it. Um, I like the younger level a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, I think there are a lot of players, a lot, a lot of past players, retired players, that do want to get involved. And I think it's finding the way through with U.S. soccer to make that happen. I know Tab's made his way through and getting more of the men. I think it's so great. I mean, Germany on the women's side, they have so many retired players involved in their programs. So I think it's really finding the balance of bringing um, retired players in and also going through the, the coaching systems and also f finding a fit. A lot of us had kids later in life, so me leaving my kids is a little bit hard, plus financially, too. So there's a balance of all that involved. But I know that a lot of uh, the women's side, we care about the game so much. We care about this national team and the development, the younger teams too, that we want to find a way where we can help. Because we're all kind of helping in batches, but it's, it's really finding the system that is bringing it all together. I mean, you're talking about the U20s. You're helping Jurgen in that process. And how many of those players are making the full team? On the women's side, how many on the U20s making the full team? Mallard Pugh's in there now. That's one player. So in the process of having these younger teams, the 17s and 20s, we, we need like 10 of those players to make in the full team because that's what we're doing. We're trying, to tr we're trying to train these players to be brought up through the system. So I think it's finding that avenue. And I'm not going to be the head coach of the national team, no. <laughs> However, I will cheer on it. I will, I will be in a way, I will help in any way because I, I love the game and I, love, I want these kids to feel, uh, be able to make it one day. Christine, uh, one of the hot topics in U.S. soccer right now is the equal pay for the women um, amongst not just pay but playing conditions. Um, did any former players reach out to you, and did you think this is their only option? Um, no, they haven't reached out to me, and I don't, know, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes. I don't know what kind of negotiations have been going on between the players and U.S. soccer. I don't know any of that. Um, do I think that women need to pay more? Yes, I think we all do. I think, I think the... There's so many components involved, and a lot of the people from the outside, all they see is like 
oh, the women are getting this, the men are getting this. And I think there's been a process on the men's side as well with U.S. soccer. I mean, back in the day when we were p playing, things were, we were just kind of growing with it. You know, we, I mean, when I made the national team at 16, I was getting $10 a day, and I thought that was awesome. I was, always, I was 16, so I couldn't get paid. But even the older players, we weren't getting any money. So we were growing with what was happening. Obviously, now, if you look at the level where soccer is, the attention on it is a lot higher than it even was in 99. Um, that moment was still kind of pushed to where we are now. So there's a lot of puzzle, pieces to the puzzle that need to be worked out. I do think the women need to get paid more. I think their bonus that they got from making the World Cup team was the same when I was playing. So that's not right. I mean, that's a long time away. Um, I don't think it's a battle between the men and the women. I think it's just showing statistically, look at what the guys get for making it to the 16th round, the women make, win a World Cup, and it's not even close. So I don't think, I don't, I hope the girls realize that don't make it a battle between the men's national team and the women, because it's not. It's more with U.S. soccer and really supporting um, the women and where the game is. I mean, like I said, we were just talking how much it's on TV. So it's, you can't fight soccer in America anymore. It's here. It's here, and you got to support it. You got to put dollars behind it, and you got to you got to give the women what they deserve. I mean, what happened this World Cup and where they are is it's something needs to change a bit. And whether they've had that talk with U.S. Soccer prior to their lawsuit, I don't know. Um, you always wish that stuff could be not thrown out there, but they probably saw it as a leverage in a, in a sense. Grant, you spent a lot of time over the past few years covering FIFA. What are some of the shocking things that you've discovered? How will FIFA look five years from now? Yeah, we could be here for a while. First off, let me just say, the last AO rally was in 2011 in Las Vegas. I was running for FIFA president at the time. And, and you guys were awesome because I think there's still some of this video living on the internet somewhere. Uh, you guys like being very supportive in front of like the Caesars Palace Fountain uh, or something. Um, and obviously, all I wanted to do then, because I knew I wasn't going to win, was call attention to the, effect, to the fact that, like, here's this guy, Sepp Blatter, running for FIFA president again, and no one's really running against him, and, and look at all that's messed up at FIFA. And I hope that maybe that did a little bit to get people sort of looking at it. Um, and then, obviously, Loretta Lynch started looking at it. And... Um, I actually feel really proud as an American that Loretta Lynch and the U.S. government took down FIFA. Um, and think it's something that needed to be done, think it's something that can allow us to feel better about what's happening at kind of that area of the sport. I mean, there's so much great that's going on. We love the sport worldwide. We love the World Cup. And nobody was ever like not going to go to the World Cup or boycott the World Cup because FIFA was shady. But now it's finally gotten to a point where there's at least a process happening where the culture appears to be starting to be cleaned up. And, uh, and that's great. And I can't wait for more arrests. And it's nice that Sepp Blatter is finally out of office because without the US investigation, he would still be in office. And it's gonna take a long time to earn back credibility. Um, it was interesting because like, the US has had this really big influence on FIFA and actually my concern now, because I really do hope the US ends up hosting World Cup 2026. Um, and that's going to be a vote of the Congress and there's been so much US influence on FIFA 
lately that I hope there's not going to be a backlash there. But I feel pretty confident thinking that the U.S. is going to get 26. And, uh, and so that would be an amazing thing, obviously, for the sport in the U.S. and something for us all to look forward to. And uh, so that's, I don't know, maybe a, a positive result of the, of the involvement that the U.S. government's had. Uh, Grant, really quick, uh, Sunil Gulati has run unopposed for quite some time. Is that a position you'd want to challenge for? It is something, it's, a, it's really close to home. I knew I wouldn't win FIFA president, and I like being a journalist, you know? I like telling stories. It's, it's kind of what I do best. And so uh, I think you're maybe a little better situated. I'm not so sure, but yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> Plus, you have all those YouTube subscribers. Um, but, Just wait till they turn 18, you know, then but, they can really be able to go. But I will say this. I love you guys. I Periscope. would love to see someone run against Sunil Gulati, not because Sunil Gulati deserves to lose his job, but because I think that's always good if you have a democracy that you don't have one candidate elections. And uh, so, yeah, I think that would be a good thing to have someone do it. Do you think that Qatar could get stripped of the World Cup? What would it take? The most likely scenario or most possible scenario would be if there's a Swiss governmental investigation into the bids for 2018 and 22. Now, we're too close to 2018 for Russia to lose it, but if they find with their subpoena power and their investigation real bad stuff that they can document, then FIFA's like the NCAA. So if they don't necessarily have their own investigative unit that's worth anything, but if you can prove it, in a, like a criminal investigation could show it, FIFA would take it away from in a heartbeat. That's all, but you need to show it, and we haven't seen the evidence yet. So, um, you know, right now, we're all gonna be in Qatar in 2022. Um, and uh, it's, the interesting thing about it is, is that there would be all sorts of downsides. There's all sorts of downsides to a Qatar World Cup. Uh, from the treatment of the workers over there and people dying to the heat's not so much of a problem anymore because they moved it to November, but that's kind of weird because that's like during football season. Um, but once you're over there, it's still going to be the World Cup. So even if it does happen, and I, people tell me they think it will still happen there, um, you know, it'll, it'll be a good thing. I still think a, a World Cup's a World Cup, but I would love to see it move somewhere. This is for the whole panel. You guys can chime in as you want. Um, how has social media changed um, current players, um, their relationship with their fans, as opposed um, some of you guys, there wasn't as much when you played. Um, how do you think that affects current players? Uh, I would say I was on the, towards the end of my career, was uh, Twitter had just started getting more popular. And when you have the raw emotion of maybe not having your best performance or if the team doesn't do well, uh, it's in your best interest not to go on Twitter or uh, any of those sites. And, and it's hard not to because you want to at least get an understanding or, or, or have a feel for what the public is saying and, and how they're feeling about the game themselves. Uh, and you already have an idea as a player. You play long enough, you, you, can, you, can, <laughs> you can judge for yourself where you stand. But then when you see it reinforced by people you're like, oh man, my, not only do I feel crappy, everybody else feels crappy about me too. And, and that's, a, that's a tough pill to swallow. And so I did early on um, have some social media faux pas, 
and now definitely in hindsight, where I would fight back a little bit and maybe take a negative comment and try to spin it in a way that was me trying to be bigger than it. But you, by entertaining it, you just add fuel to the fire, and then one person sees it, and then another person sees it, and they know that you're going to answer, and they know you're reading, so they're going to write whatever they want to write. And, and that must be hard now, where, where social media is so prevalent. I was just kind of on the cusp of it. Um, I do have a funny story, U.S. soccer related, where it was the 09 Gold Cup. I had gotten knocked out uh, against Panama in the quarterfinals, the concussion, but I stayed with the team. And we traveled to Chicago to play against Honduras in the semifinals. So I was, me and John Hackworth, uh, were kind of up in the, taking notes from high above and helping the coaching staff. I just still wanted to be of service uh, to the team in any way. And Mexico won the other semifinal that night. So after the game, the final was in New York, where well, we chartered a flight back to New York, and Mexico was on our flight. Well, earlier in that tournament, the Mexico coach, he had kicked a Pan Panamanian player on the sideline when the ball uh, went out. Grant knows this story. Yeah. Um, and this is the power of social media uh, in crazy ways. But I... Um, uh, so when we got on the plane, we found out Mexico was going to be on the plane with us, so I tweeted out, um, you know, we're on the plane with Mexico. Um, I hope the coach doesn't kick me when we walk past him on the aisle. <laughs> Which is a really funny tweet, and Grant was like, that was a great tweet. I remember him telling me that. I was like really proud of myself. And, and uh, it, it ended up, so excuse me, three hours later, we get on the flight, come on, I'm getting death threats on my Twitter. I like quadrupled my followers, uh, led the... Sports Center in Mexico, um, and I wasn't even playing, so I couldn't even really like. And then we got smoked five nothing in the finals. Just and I had to I had to apologize to the, the Mexican people the next day that it was just a joke and, and I took your down Twitter the tweet. Too, I took right? down my Twitter account because I hadn't seen my family. I just had a new baby, so my wife and baby were, you know, I hadn't seen them in five weeks. And people can find out where you live if they want to. So it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, so social tweet. media is what's that? Great tweet. Yeah, it was a great tweet. And I honestly, now, in hindsight, I wish I would have had the courage just to, to have kept it up and just said, hey, listen, it's a joke. Everybody needs to lighten up. And I think that's kind of the course I've taken with social media from here on out. But, but it was a valuable lesson. And Bob, Bob Bradley was the coach. Um, yeah, not as keen on the social media stuff uh, than, let's say, some other managers. But um, yeah, so I just thought I'd share that story. I don't know why I just said that, but go ahead. So, so with the youth national teams, obviously it's, you know, um, like Jimmy's saying, it, it, you know, it, it can be difficult just tweeting one thing that, that's wrong. And so we do educate the players all the way from the 15s all the way up. Uh, we have, you know, a special day, and which is just about social media to make sure that they know, you know, you know something that's very simple as just taking a picture of your hotel and, you know, and posting it. Um, you know, those are all the little things that we have to warn all, uh, warn all the players about um, because social media, they, they carry a social responsibility. They're representing the U.S., representing you, representing the rest of the people. So, um, so it's important to us, and it's become, you know, it's, it's big. Yep. Absolutely. I just have one more question um, before we, we're going to do a, a quick Q&A. Um, some of the guys in the crowd, guys and gals in the crowd have questions. But um, we're here, obviously, um, for a rally to try to unify our our support and, and improve certain things. What are some of the things you guys on the panel here um, think that we do well, and where do you think there's some areas we can improve as a group? I would say uh, f from the improvement, excuse me, for what you guys do really, really well is your ability to mobilize and to get different chapters on the same page very quickly. Um, and to, there's a lot that you guys have to work with logistically, whether it's TIFO or, if, you know, I've been to AO Columbus's kind of run and shop 
uh, for a game there, but then other people want to come in and make sure that there's help, and sometimes there's friction there. Um, and, and that's unfortunate to see sometimes, or capos are yelling at other capos from different chapters, and, and I understand that's going to be a natural part of the growth, and, and as you try to figure out how we work together when we come into different markets, but I think you guys just do a great job in general of mobilizing, um, getting everybody together and excited that everybody's intentions are good. There, there's nobody there I think that's, that's trying to undermine anybody else. I think, hey, we just want to put on a good show and, and be proud of the chapter that, you know, we, we got 100 people from Charlotte to come to a game in Columbus. We just want to make sure that, that our chapter is doing the right things. And, and so there might be a lot of pride in that. But again, the intentions are good. So I, I applaud you guys for um, coming out and coming out in numbers. Whether now you guys are talking about going to under 20 games and U23 games yeah. and and just the enthusiasm to cover U.S. soccer at all levels is, is pretty incredible. Um, in terms of improvement, I guess it's just communication. And, you know, again, as I said earlier this morning, you're going to run into challenges with growth as you add on more people, and people are going to embrace the American Outlaws and what it's about in their own way. Sometimes that not, might not be in the way that you guys intend with Unite and Strengthen and, and the, the sense of camaraderie. Not to say that they want to be part of something, but they might not understand what that, what that means. So that's a challenge for all of you guys um, to, to make sure that that gets across. So the communication, I mean, I mean, that's, I think, what you guys do well, but also it's probably something you, continue to, you, you can continue to get better at. I'm impressed by the consistency, that you always know that you're the night before a U.S. game that there's going to be an AO party, and it's very easy. In, like, five seconds, you can find out where it's going to be and go and say hi to everyone. And I think it seems like a very welcoming environment um, I hung out a little bit with the AO folks who were in uh, Guatemala for the qualifier there, and I don't know why this is the case, because I think sometimes AO gets its reputation in some quarters as a bro culture, but that was not the case at all here, if you look at, at this group, and also in Guatemala. Like, that was a really cool group of, a, a diverse group of people that was a lot of fun to hang out with. Um, so whatever you're doing to create that, keep doing it. Um, and then handling the, what comes with growth, because I don't know if any of the people who started AO thought this group would get as big as it is even right now. And, <laughs> and just trying to figure out how do you deal with that and make the best of it and use it to keep growing and doing cool things. And, and there have been some challenges, as there would be with any organization, and yet I feel like you guys have responded well to that and haven't sort of just been defensive about any sort of negative publicity. And I, I compare this to the last rally five years ago in, in Vegas and, and go to the events that you guys have before U.S. games and at U.S. games, and the growth is, it's just really impressive. So, congratulations. Thank you. Tab, uh, I mean, I, I would just say that there's really nothing I could recommend. I mean, you're amazing. You really are. I mean, what you do, I could have never imagined this, you know, 30 years ago. I, I couldn't have, I couldn't, I couldn't paint a better f picture for the future. I don't know what you can do better. I have no idea because I know when we walk into the stadium, it's just amazing, and, and we love that. You know, I can go back to 1988, 89, when we sold out St. Louis Soccer Park for the first time uh, to play a World Cup qualifier, and it was the first time that there was no more tickets that said on there, you know, sold out, and I think that was maybe 3,500 people. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it was the first time we've come a long way. This, for me, I would turn the question around and say, what, what can we do better from a national team standpoint? Um, 
you know, to, to make your experience better. Gotta be Guatemala on the help. road. <laughs> <Sorry. Yeah. laughs> What's the start there? So yeah, so I would, turn the, I would turn the question around and say if there's anything we can do better to make your experience better, we know the effort that you make. And whether it's going to Guatemala and losing the game or whether it's going somewhere else, we know that it requires a lot of movement, a lot of effort, and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, a lot of planning. Uh, and so if there's anything we can do to make that experience better, we would certainly uh, do it. I know that the players appreciate everything you do. Christine? Yeah, I would just say it matters. I mean, you probably don't feel it sometimes if you don't get enough uh, thanks and all that for the support, but it, it totally matters. And I think the challenge you guys have is the same challenge uh, we as a country with soccer is that we have so many pockets of people trying to do the same thing. And those pockets all need to come together for the better of, of the sport. And I think that might be the challenges as you guys grow. There's other people that are doing similar things, but how can we bring all those people that still are trying to get the same message, or have same support across and come together? And I think we have that same challenge with just growing the game with our with our players. So, but no, it matters. It definitely matters, and it and it feels good. It really does. Um, so that's all I can say is thank you. We have uh, time for a few questions. Um, does anybody have a question for? The all right. So this question is just basically open to anyone. Um, so, how much influence do you think U.S. soccer should have on the uh, NCAA college athletic system? Because you know, recent story uh, the, with the women's. Uh, if you're, you have the red shirt to, you know, make that under 20 World Cup, and with the, the you know, this the programs as a whole, we talked about earlier about how MLS is a short season. Well, college soccer is even worse, you know. So how far, you know, think you, you think U.S. soccer's reach should go into that? Because we have so many players coming out of the academy system not playing first team minutes as a young players. They're going, they're going to college. I'll answer real quick because maybe uh, we, you know, we have other answers up here. But on, you know, on the men's game, I can tell you, the U20 national team that just went to the World Cup, there was basically no NCAA players on it. They all were already pros, and the only two players who were not pros were backup goalkeepers. So it's really not, you know, it, it doesn't affect us. Now, we, I do work with Sasha Sorovsky in Maryland to try to help them. They're trying to implement that double season where they play some games in the fall and some in the spring which will give them an opportunity to train more throughout the year, which I think will help everyone. And certainly for the laid developers, uh, not the 28-year-old laid developers, but, but the, <laughs> the ones who develop at 19 and 20 will help. And I, mean, I think in the women's game, it's probably a lot more Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, a fine line. I mean, obviously, being with the university now, and it hurts the college. It hurts the college team because, you know, um, first off, they're paying for that player to be at school too. So you, you you have to figure out the balance of that. You don't wanna hold the player back because the opportunity that, that they ha do have. Uh, so my question is, um, so in the past, you know, the US team had to be pretty gritty. Um, we, we didn't have the technical skill, you know, we're talking about developing. So we just basically had to be more fit, more physical, and just want it. Have more. you seen this guy play before? <laughs> well, well, He's most, one of our most technical players of all time right here. Yeah, but well, just- I hear here on that. So, yeah, yeah. so There's a Snickers commercial you gotta watch. <laughs> 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 he hates it to bring up the Snickers commercial, by the way. Um, 
But I'm gonna hold hands with Tab right now. Also, it seemed like we were always our players always trying to had to earn respect. Like you know, the casual sports fan didn't care about soccer. Half of the soccer fans didn't care about U.S. soccer. We couldn't fill the stands even for the men. So that's changed now. Like we've you know we've helped become a huge part, create this like really dynamic support. This like 12th man, this huge thing. Things we love doing. We absolutely love doing it. That's why we're here. Um, it just, does it seem like the players are like getting caught up in being famous too soon now? Because now they're famous in the past. They weren't famous and now they're famous. Like people are like, why do you have your own, you have your own clothing line? Like, okay, yeah. but are you focused on your, on your Who has their own clothing sport? line? I want, I want to do that. Is that a mix <laughs> reference? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I totally understand what you're saying. And to answer your question, and it's not a good answer, but I think we've, to a certain extent, lost a little bit of our identity. And I think it's gone as far as, you know, I, about 10 years ago, I started to hear about, you know, winning not being important at the younger age groups, you know, and that's whether it's the seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds, and obviously that's not important at all. But I think the message has gone so hard into winning is not important that it's passed all the way on to our development academy, and our development academy games are not even competitive because winning is not important. So our players sometimes are in a good environment because they're training four or five days a week, and I'm not talking about the little guys because it's totally not important for them to win games. but to a certain extent, we've, we've almost gone the other way and we lost a little bit of that identity that we had when you talk about our teams being gritty and hard and strong and coming on the field and playing hard every time. And we want to get that back. We want to get that back because I think we do feel that we lost a little bit of that. Yeah, that's huge for us. That's, as fans, that's all we want to see. When we go travel and stuff, like you just, we want to see players like work. And sometimes recently you're wondering. That's no, and I, and I agree with you because playing hard doesn't mean that you have bad players. So good players, skillful players can play hard. And, and I think we need more of that, for sure. Yep. Now, Tab, I, would, I, would, I just thought like with winning, it was when I try to give the argument of de-emphasizing winning for a younger age, it just felt like that's inherent. You would just develop the guy, the players that wanted to win would just emerge and that, that you automatically have that. So it's interesting to, to hear your perspective on that our guys are getting soft and don't want to win games well, anymore in some ways. That's, well, I, well, I that's mind blowing. I mean, that, that's what you're seeing. That's, well, I, well, I didn't that's say we don't want to win games. Let's not put that in <laughs> Everybody wants to win games. <laughs> no, but I think it's also societal. I think it's a societal thing. Everything's, everything's okay. Every kid gets a trophy. I'm like, my daughter comes home and I'm, she has a trophy. What would you get for her? I don't know. So there's the reward, not saying reward for everything, but the reward for just being there, it seems satisfactory. So we're kind of just, we're all like comfortable in this little zone here. Um, and I think it's fine, that fine line of now these kids, they need to, to lose, they need to struggle, and they need to find a way to get back and keep doing it. And I'm a parent now and trying to, and you never want your kid to be sad, you don't want your kid to get hurt, but if they don't, they're never, know, never gonna know how to get out of that. And I think that's not, I think it's on every, I mean, especially the college level I see, the kids are just like, oh, here I am. I'm like, okay, you just lost, you know? And that's hard for me to see. I'm like, what? how do you not want to win? You know, how do you not want to go after it or just compete? Just compete out there. So I think, I think you're on, I think it's just a societal thing that we've kind of created for our, our youth that we need to start to regenerate back in there. This is yet another, or not another question for Jimmy. This is actually for Tab. We're going to load you up with questions today. Um, How can at this point someone have a question for both of us at the same time? (laughs) (laughs) Now, when it comes to uh, MLS development, when you're working with different MLS clubs, uh, how often do you have interactions uh, with their youth or with their head coaches? Um, Like, for example, FC Dallas, what what kind of conversations do you have with Marco Furry's 
Peruzzi and Oscar Perea, and, and uh, do you kind of pick each other's brains on uh, on better things to do on the U.S. soccer side and with uh, an MLS club like FC Dallas? So, so the answer to that, to that would be that, you know, to be a good coach, you have to be open to opinions. And you don't have all the answers. And the more people that you surround yourself by who know what they're doing, the better you're going to be. And will allow you to think out of the box a little bit more. Sometimes we're fixed on our ideas. So you and I can be sitting at a table and I can tell you, hey, I want my team to play like this. But then you can come up with suggestions and say, well, but if you did this, what about that? And then... Maybe I don't necessarily agree exactly with what you said, but it makes me think a little bit different. And so we do that all the time. Uh, Oscar, in particular, I speak with often, but you know, I speak with a lot of MLS coaches because I, I speak with them about their players a lot of the time, but we exchange ideas all the time. And I, I, just, I just don't think you can be a good coach if you're not open to other people's ideas and knowing that you don't have all the answers. So my question's really for the group. So, Tab, you kind of talked about how we haven't, um, developed any top 10 men's players in the world. So do you think there's something inherently different with the way we develop women's players? Um, when you look at the women's players, we've consistently always developed the best women's players in the world. So is there something we could do with developing women's players and apply that to the men's side? So is there something we could do on the men's game that, that would sort of copy what the women have been doing? Yeah. If you want to copy anything, yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, it, it's, a it's a very tough question because yeah. I think our women have been leaders for a long time, and so, and we haven't. And so, like I mentioned before, I think the women's game is at a difficult point now because now they, they're the top, so they have to keep striving for the best. We're in a little easier spot because we're not the best, and we can say we want to be like all those other teams. Um, so our approach is different. Uh, and so I'm not sure that there's anything necessarily that we could do that's the same as what the women are doing because we're in completely different places. Uh, this question is directed for the entire group. We've talked a lot about how soccer has been in, more in the media, more on TV, more accessible to Americans over the last 10 years. What's the one league, we all talk about watching EPL, La Liga, MLS. What's that one league that you watch that you're kind of like, oh, this is kind of the obscure league that really you're fascinated either by their style of play or by the players in that league and that you would want to see more Americans considering? Well, I wouldn't say obscure for the Argentinian league, but I like watching Argentinian soccer. Uh, it has all, it has the technical ability, it has the speed some games of the Premier League and the intensity of the Premier League. I, I, I like in particular, if I have the time, that would be a league that I go to watch. This isn't answering the question necessarily. I'm not just going to be a shill for Fox here because I work there. But like, it's nice to be able to see the Bundesliga more easily now this starting this season than it ever was before because it was actually really hard to see the Bundesliga. And there's probably more U.S. national team players and prospects in the Bundesliga than in any other European league. Um, so I don't know. I'm pretty excited about it. I, I agree with that. I thought the question was like a league outside of yeah, the big and, and ones it that was, we already and you watched. answered yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, oh, okay, like the Bundesliga you, is definitely. not like some obscure league. A good but, plug for Fox. Yeah. I actually had one really quick question. I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So, uh, so this question is directed to everyone here. What are the what are the best places that you've ever watched soccer? What are the best places to go and cover soccer? What's the worst? And uh, Maybe if there's a, a story to tell as to why. I would say one of my favorite places to watch um, is the Argent Argentine League. Uh, I've been down to see 
Oh, playing? Okay, so I played against um, Germany at the Westfalen Stadion where Borussia Dortmund plays. I was 0 0 at half. I'll just leave it there. And um, <laughs> it was an incredible experience because I was in the back line with Greg Berhalter and Corey Gibbs. And from me to Christine, I'd be yelling and he couldn't hear me. I'm like, this is, this is what it's all about. So if we can just somehow mimic this for every single game I'm in, this is, uh, this, I love it. Um, I didn't love the second half so much, but I loved uh, the, the atmosphere and the feel of that and, and how important the game was, even though it was a friendly. Uh, and, and, and that's starting to change, as I, as I said earlier um, in, in my speech, that what you guys are creating is, is a similar atmosphere, and it's becoming deafening, and it, it matters, and, and it's relevant, and, and it's cool that, that I don't have to go to Europe to, to experience that anymore, even as a player or as a fan. Like, it, it exists now, and it's, and it's a credit to you guys for doing that. See how I spun that? Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> I was um, patting myself on the back on that one. Sorry. I think uh, for me, personally, playing in the U.S. is the best. The crowd. The, uh, city. What city? Oh. Well, now you're going to make people yeah, mad. I mean, yeah. why, why would I do that? Smart, <laughs> Christine. Playing, just just playing, stop. No, just I love, pick I, somewhere outside. <laughs> no, playing in the U.S. has been great because I'm going to tell you two examples. So in 1990, we're qualifying for the World Cup, and we we're in Haiti. And this atmosphere in Haiti was unbelievable. They were playing drums. There was a great smell in the air. <laughs> but they were, the, uh, the, when I looked around, the, fan, the fans were having so much fun. And this was my first real taste of, I mean, we played in China pri prior to that, but the energy was so different. And they were just, they loved the game. They loved, they were just so happy, whether it was the smell or not, who knows. But, <laughs> and I was like, I was 1990, I'm like 20 years old. Uh, 19 years old, I'm like, what is going on? But it was so great, and I think it was such a, they were happy. And then uh, for me playing, and, I, and we won, so that helped. And then Mexico, 2000, for qualifying for the World Cup when we lost to Mexico, we are in Mexico playing. And uh, I was on the bench most of the game for the last 10 minutes, and you couldn't hear anything on the field. Like, like you couldn't, they, the players couldn't talk to each other. When I finally went in, they, I was trying to yell, to the referee because the linesman had a, her flag up and she didn't see it for five minutes. I'm like, it's an offsides for, but you couldn't hear anything. So I hated it, you know. And they had and they were happy, but I didn't win, so I didn't care for it. <laughs> um, so I think just the the atmosphere. I mean, the atmosphere would you guys provide? It's really it's that's why I like playing in the states. You know, you guys love us. If we go somewhere else, they hate us. So it's really nice to play here. Uh, uh, for me, as a player, I would have to. As a player, I would have to say, um, I was playing at Real Betis in Spain, and we went to Camp Nou and beat Barcelona in the, in the, in the uh, Cup quarterfinals. Um, that was a day I would, I would want to have back, because it was just amazing. First of all, that's like the biggest field I've ever seen. Like, the width of the field is like 100 yards. You can't even, you know, it takes you four passes to go from one side to the other. Um, and I think we crossed midfield one time and we scored a goal and went, went to the semifinal. So as a player, I think that day, because it, like I said before, I don't have a great memory and I don't remember a lot, but that was it. And then as a coach, I mean, you know, and I know everybody comes from different cities here, but it, it's, it's hard to beat Columbus when we, pl when we play at home. You know, there's something about, there's something special there, something about the, the way that works, although it's a little stadium. Uh, it's a tough one. And then the last one I would say is when we played Mexico at the Rose Bowl, the game we just lost 3-2, being an assistant coach in that game and seeing that there was 30, 35,000 of our people there, that was, for me, that's world-changing because, you know, anytime we've played in L.A. in the past, it was 
99,000 Mexicans and you know a thousand of us and and to actually for us to be able to face one side of the stadium and just see red white, red white and blue was amazing so I would pick that moment I didn't play but uh, I would say like it's been really cool to 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 follow the US teams over the years and be in some really special scenarios I mean I I remember Everything about the day of the 99 Women's World Cup final, being in the Rose Bowl, uh, Christine's header off the line to clear a goal in that game. Um, and just trying to feel like I was up to that moment to write a story in, in the magazine that would hold up. And, and they provided the moments, and, and it's just a really neat memory, I guess, to have been there. And then on the men's side, the 2002 World Cup stands out the most. Just being so stunned to see how Portugal came into that first game with the World Player of the Year and people talking about him winning the World Cup and the U.S. had him down 3 nothing before halftime. And being in that stadium and kind of looking around and, and is this really happening? And then that whole tournament just... Uh, beating Mexico in a game that was an elimination game in the World Cup, which I think is the hardest loss Mexico has ever had, basically. What was the uh, score of that game? <laughs> <laughs> Might have been the original Dos Acero, or at least the second one. Um, and then just following that, and even the loss to Germany in the quarterfinals of that tournament, because the U.S. played such good soccer, outplayed Germany, and even though there was so much disappointment about not advancing to a World Cup semifinal against South Korea, when you're like, this isn't far from like winning the World <laughs> Cup, um, to like just, you felt like the U.S. had arrived. And uh, it's not like a linear progression, and we you know, haven't been back to the quarterfinals since, but it showed you what the U.S. could be capable of in a World Cup, and told me that, I really do think it's possible for the U.S. men to win a World Cup uh, in, in our lifetimes. And I don't think we're going to need to live to be 150. All right. Well, on behalf of the American Outlaws, um, we want to thank each of you for being here today. It's humbling, and uh, we, we can't thank you guys enough for what you've done for us and what you've done for U.S. soccer. So let's give them a round of applause. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.